Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Grapefruit and Lullaby, and a version of Lullaby produced by Lennon and McCartney from Good as Gold, Artifacts of the Apple Era, 1967 to 1975, a five-CD box set of material recorded between those years for Apple Records and Apple Publishing, as well as Apple's demo studio. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome today Stefan Granados, compiler of that wonderful CD set, as well as the author of a fully updated book, Those Were the Days, The Beatles and Apple, which about 20 years ago was the only authoritative 
overall look at Apple, and it's been fully rehauled today. So welcome, Stefan. Jason, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. I've had the original Apple publishing demo CDs, as well as the original, those were the days for the past couple of decades. So it's it's great to, <laughs> to finally catch up with you and get a, a new take on Apple, really. I've just mentioned that we've opened with Grapefruit and Lullaby, and that being from the first disc of the new Good as Gold box set. And that's from a Lost Sessions and Singles, 1968-69. Is that a bit of a rarer version of Lullaby by Grapefruit? Well, this version actually did come out, uh, well, a a version of the version, uh, a different mastering and mix uh, came out in one of the Apple publishing CDs. And this was probably 14, 15 years ago, came off of an acetate that we found. And we had read press from the time that said Lennon and McCartney had produced a version of Lullaby, but the acetate made no reference. But it's one of the interesting things with the book and also this, this new box set, so much new material and information has come out over the past 20 years or, or been found. And when we did that grapefruit box set, we were actually able to get not box set, the Grapefruit uh, London Session CD that you just referenced, uh, we were able to get the tape boxes you know, for all of these tracks. And sure enough, it was recorded at AdVision in January 68, and producers are John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Um, so we finally had confirmation. There was no reference to Spencer Davis, who apparently was there and also chipping in a bunch of things, according to the members of Grapefruit. But uh, we were just happy to get confirmation that Lennon and McCartney had you know, produced this track, and it's the only track that the two of them had ever produced for another artist. So it, it's it's a bit of a special thing, and it's a wonderful song, um, and it's a far superior version to what they ultimately uh, reproduced for themselves uh, nine months later uh, for their Around Grapefruit album. And this version of the track was intended to be the follow-up to the what then was a hit single, Dear Delilah, wasn't it? It was, and the Beatles went off to India soon after recording it, and... The Grapefruit guys, George Alexander was just coming up with so many great songs, um, and they they had so much material to choose from that they decided, you know what, we're going to go with our own songs. We're going to go with the song we just produced, Elevator, uh, and yes, their double A side. Uh, John Perry from Grapefruit did the other the other track, and they shelved the song that the Beatles uh, produced for them, and that was to their chagrin. You know, they they regretted doing that ultimately. Um, they even more regretted putting it as a double A side, the elevator and yes, because the radio folks didn't know what song to play. So they sort of shot themselves in the foot uh, to a certain extent uh, with their second single. But you know, thankfully, the tapes you know did survive all these years, and they're they're still here to enjoy and just marvel at. And it's, it was great to be able to put them together as a you know a definitive twenty, I think twenty song CD of uh, all the grapefruit tracks that they recorded for Apple, and they were Apple tracks uh, they just there was no apple records label at the time so apple licensed them out but they were there's as much of an apple track as any of the the bad finger things or mary hopkins you know, apple owned them paid for them did all the sessions and they just you know farmed them out to a label that was ready to go as opposed to waiting you know six seven months to get apple records up so they really were almost the first apple act yeah so it's worth highlighting that apple publishing was up and running and signing bands before the Apple label was uh, set up, wasn't it? Almost a full year. And they, they got a lot of experience doing that. Uh, they found a, a lot of good artists. They found out, you know, ways to work with artists. Oddly enough, though, they didn't really sign too many of the groups that they had on Apple Publishing to the label. 
uh, once they got it going, which was, I never got a good answer from any of the folks as to why. You would think that they would develop them as, as songwriters and then funnel them into the label, which even today is a, is a fairly common practice. Uh, but at the time, outside of Grapefruit, you know, no one made the jump from the publishing to the record label, which is surprising given the quality of, of the tracks that a lot of those writers are delivering for Apple. Is it Terry Darren who was sort of head of Apple Publishing who was responsible for bringing Grapefruit in or, or certainly cultivating them as artists? He was. Uh, he, he signed a lot of great acts in the, I don't know, eight or eight or ten months that he was in charge of Apple Publishing. And he, he told me, I, I had one discussion with him in the, the late 90s, very odd discussion. You know, he didn't really want to talk too much. But one of the things that he did let out was, you know, sort of sadly that he wasn't very good at music publishing. And I, you know, I said, well, maybe as a business person, you had a couple of challenges. But in terms of ears and in terms of the, the writers that you brought in, I, I think you, you did very well. And, uh, you know, as those individual Apple publishing CDs that we've done and now the, the the five CD Good as Gold box set show. There's a lot of really good material in the Apple Publishing catalog, and a lot of that due to Terry Doran. Absolutely. Now recall the Grapefruit, perhaps with the second band signed to Apple Publishing, but Focal Point were the first, and, and they're our next band on the podcast with Never Never, and uh, they, I think they released a, a single on on DRAM in that period. There is an, an interview with uh, Dave Slater of Focal Point on the Strange Brew website. Focal Point, because they didn't enjoy any chart success, un- even unlike Grapefruit, were a band that are a bit lost to time now, but very notable in Apple's history being the first band. Yeah, that was one of the great things. When, when my the first edition of my book, Those Were the Days, came out in 2002, Paul Tennant, who was uh, the lead singer and one of the co-songwriters, uh, he contacted Cherry Red, uh, the publisher, and said, I'm amazed that someone actually got Focal Point into the Apple story because no one had ever even known that and put it out, let alone, you know, discussed it at, at length to a certain extent. You know, I hadn't interviewed any of the guys at that time, so um, it was it was a half a paragraph or something. But in, in the new book, there's a lot of material on Focal Point. It was a fascinating story about these teenagers who came down from Liverpool on holiday and got signed up as, as songwriters. And they were really good. Their songs were really good. They were a good band, um, but it, it never happened for them. And partially because maybe it was the wrong song that they used as a single, Love You Forever, you know, as, as you will hear. I mean, there's a lot of great material that they had. But one of the things that I tried to, to do with both the, the, the publishing CDs and the book is to put things in a historical context. And as good as songs as never ever are, when you look back at the English charts, those kind of things weren't really doing particularly well. I mean, Family, a great band, did some great albums, nothing really charted. What was in the charts was, you know, Amen Corner, you know, a great band, but you know, very poppy, very different. They really weren't that psychedelic, you know, or uh, Love Affair or things like that. And could they have actually, you know, had hit singles? Maybe they could have, you know, been like grapefruit, but a lot of their stuff sounds great to someone sitting here in the the late 1990s and the 2000s, whatever. Um, historically, what what great psychedelic pop! But in England in 1968, it was a hard sell, and I think they sort of fell victim to that 
uh, as did you know Grapefruit and some of the other groups that the Beatles have brought on. Yeah, because I think Paul McCartney wanted Never Never there was a, a single release, but the label didn't release that and, and things really didn't happen for the group. No, they, they played it very safe and it didn't help that they let that known to the to people at Durham when uh, they had a launch party and they started uh, ripping into the management who had assembled there. Uh, I don't think that helped their chances at all. But um, yeah, it was just the wrong song and you know not at the right time. And unfortunately, you know the group sort of you know fell apart at that point. And uncharacteristically of Apple, they sort of severed their relationship with Focal Point soon thereafter when the record didn't happen. Um, Apple had a has a pretty good track history of, of really working with artists and keeping them on, you know, for a good amount of time. But as soon as that record didn't happen, uh, Apple's, you know, stopped paying their rent and stopped, uh, you know, paying their retainer, and the group ultimately ended up going back to Liverpool and really didn't do too much more after that. There's quite a lot of focal point material on on the box set, isn't there? There is. Um, it's it's a lot of their unreleased. Uh, tracks that they did when they were recording their single, but we also found a lot of the demos that they recorded up in the uh, attic up in Baker Street. Uh, when the Beatles set up uh, Apple Publishing at 94 Baker Street above the above the shop, actually it, it predated the shop by a couple months, um, they put a little you know, two-track, well, two Rebox machine, mono machines up in the attic for recording songwriter demos. And most of the songwriters who did record there were just, you know, a, a good song or singer songwriter who would record a voice and guitar demo or sometimes overdub a, a bass or, you know, a keyboard. But Focal Point actually went up there. They dragged their drums and everything up there and they made somewhat crude sounding, but really interesting demos with the full band playing. And I think we've put almost everything that we were able to find uh, on the box set. There's four or five tracks of them just pouring their heart in these really great songs. Uh, up in the, the Baker Street attic, hoping not to disturb the dentist who was down on the floor below uh, doing surgery. Fly 
now we have Jackie Lomax and Land of People, which is quite a rare track, or certainly was until the box set. When I think this is on uh, disc two, Children of the Sun, Pop Psych Sounds of the Apple Era. I think this might have crept out on a obscure single from the past decade, but I'm not sure it's been heard much elsewhere, has it? Actually, this was a demo uh, that Ed Diekman, uh, who has done all those A for Apple books uh, out in Holland, uncovered a couple of years ago. Uh, he included it as a single in one of his books, and the, the Lomax estate was very interested in getting it out you know, to a larger audience. So you know, Ed graciously arranged for us to, to include it on the box set, and uh, we were able to you know, improve the sound quite a lot too. And it's, it's Jackie Lomax prior to being signed to Apple Records. Uh, he wasn't in the studio. He wasn't up in the Apple attic, uh, you know, trying to make the best of the two Reeboks machines. He was probably in some four-track studio in London. And it's a, it's a really good song. He apparently, Jackie, when he was, you know, someone brought this up to him, hey, land of people, we found the acetate. He had no recollection of uh, the song or the performance, but once he heard it, uh, he said, oh yeah, that is that is uh, me. And it was, uh, in, I think, early 68 or late 67, he couldn't quite place it. But it's a great track. It, it would have fit well on the album. And uh, thankfully, it's it's managed to survive uh, the time and it's uh, available, you know, for the first time, really, you know, to a larger audience. That's a nice addition to the uh, Jackie's recorded legacy. Jackie, somewhat famously, an artist who was taken under the wing of I, George Harrison. Yeah, he had a really good working relationship with George Harrison and pretty much his entire Apple career. You know, George was involved with one way or the other. I think it probably lasted almost two years from when he started working with the label in early 68 and he was still, you know, working at it in late 1969 when George gave him one last chance with how the web was woven. But it's a fabulous album. You know, it, George Harrison really brought a lot of his best production techniques. His guitar playing is all over it. And they sound like great George Harrison songs in a way with the Jackie Lomax material. The singles he tried after, he was widening his approach to a certain extent. But it, it was all great material. And for whatever reason, it, it just never happened. And even Derek Taylor, you know, he famously said, you know, we gave Jackie, you know, every chance, you know, a, a young rock and roller at the time possibly could want. Um, and Derek also was his publicist at Warner Brothers after he left Apple. So it's one of the great mysteries. The material was great. The performance was great. Uh, the songwriting was just, you know, superb, but he just never really broke at the level he should have. And one of the nice things uh, that we were able to do with the box set when he went over to Warner Brothers, his uh, manager created a new publishing company and you know, assigned all his Warner Brothers material to that new company. And a couple of years after that, Apple said, no, 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 he's still under contract to Apple. And they actually went back and they got the copyrights back to the, the Warner Brothers album material. And we, that's why we were able to include uh, Home is in My Head uh, from the Warner Brothers album on the box set because it is an Apple publishing copyright. And Apple, in fact, you know, got that whole album back. Um, and there, there's a lot of good material there. It's different from, than his Apple material, a little bit more bluesy, but you know, still excellent songs. And again, a surprise that it didn't do more than it, it did commercially. I sit in my chair And my friends, they are all here No, that my 
seems like the the opposite approach of james taylor where they published james taylor's early solo work and released him to warners well well that's one of the things that i was happy to do with the book too i mean that was sort of what i thought the story was in 2002 when i when i did the first edition of those of the days but with those of the days 2.0 i really was able to get a lot more information on james taylor's relationship with apple and the chronology of what exactly happened He did sign to Apple Publishing, and one of the things when the album came out in America, Tony Orlando, the singer, I don't know if uh, in England people remember him from the early 70s, Tony Orlando and Don that that knocked Tie a Yellow Ribbon. Tie a Yellow Ribbon and whatever. Uh, He was a professional manager at April Music, which is a Columbia and CBS Records publishing company. And he said, James Taylor, that sounds familiar. James Taylor was already under contract to CBS April Music. 
So he went over to England and he brought the contracts over and he had a meeting with Apple Publishing and said, well, nice album you've done, but he's our artist and we want the publishing back. So Apple had a, all the money that was accruing because he was getting some good cover versions too, had to go back to Columbia and they had to change all of the you know, publishing rights and on subsequent issues of the album, it, it was April music. It wasn't Apple music anymore. So they didn't have his publishing really. They had to give all the money they made back uh, to April Music. And James, it's often thought that Apple let him get away and that you know nothing was really happening. But what I was able to find out throughout the summer of 1969, he was still an Apple artist. And he had, he came over to London to record his second album for Apple in June or so. And Ron Cass had been fired by Alan Klein. And there was sort of a vacuum in terms of management. And no one was able to get a session together. So he went back to the U.S., and Peter Asher had booked him in all these shows, these really prestigious like residencies. Uh, he did one at the the Bottom Line Club, and then he did one of the major folk festivals uh, that summer. And he was getting so much press in America. He was on the cusp of really breaking out. And a second Apple album would have really done that for him. He actually came back to New York in August of 1969 to again try to record an Apple album. And while he was off, you know, getting ready to record up at his family's place in Martha's Vineyard, he had a, a mini bike accident and broke both of his hands, which really doesn't lend itself to recording an album. So while he was recuperating, Peter Asher made the decision of, of leaving Apple because he wasn't comfortable with Alan Klein. James Taylor wasn't. And they had a little opportunity because Apple hadn't accounted for the royalties in July of 69 like they should have. So they used that as a, a bargaining chip. And they also said he was under 20 years of age, which he was. So the contract was you know, semi-valid. And he left and he was able to get this deal. And six months later, he was the major star. But all of that groundwork had been done while he was you know, under contract to Apple. And he most likely would have been able to b become a star um, if he had just had a chance to do another album when the, the times he tried. And it was just a case of bad timing. And Alan Klein was getting ready to sue him, uh, you know, for breach of contract. But the Beatles, you know, particularly George Harrison and Paul McCartney said, no, you know, that's not what Apple's about. Um, if he wants to go, if an artist is unhappy, you know, we'll let him go. And Peter Asher, uh, you know, to this day believes that he owes a little debt of gratitude to both of them for stepping in, just you know, cutting off some unnecessary and sure to be ugly litigation. So next we have the studio version of Drew and Die, Tales of Frankie Rabbit from the uh, Good as Gold box set. Was this previously unreleased then? All of their demos in Baker Street um, were unreleased. Um, I had heard them when I was doing the book, again, Drew and Die, I was able to find after the book came out. So now the new book includes a lot more of their story. And we were able to find the demos. And they're really good songs. And the Beatles were you know, absolutely enchanted with the material for whatever reason. According to uh, Drew, he got a ride with uh, Billy Nichols, who was uh, uh, on the Media Records singer-songwriter. And he was friends with George at the time. And he said he, he was talking to George and Ringo, and they wanted to release that demo as is. They wanted Apple to put out that acoustic demo that you hear on disc five there. And it was probably a little bit too rough. Uh, so they ultimately did go in the studio with Paul McCartney in August, 1969. And these tracks are also uh, on disc one of uh, the Good as Gold box. And these were a real find. Paul McCartney producing and, and playing you know, bass and piano on the three tracks they recorded. You said earlier that um, the Beatles are certainly 
Paul and John were, were taken with Drew and Die, including Tales of Frankie Rabbit. That song was even briefly done by the band themselves in the Get Back, Let It Be sessions. I was shocked. Uh, I was going through a couple of those, shall we say, gray market CDs that I, I bought many years ago, uh, a whole set of you know Let It Be uh, tracks. And I was sitting there just doing something else. And then all of a sudden I hear Tales of Frankie Rabbit being sung by the Beatles. Not all of it. It wasn't a complete performance, but they definitely knew the song and they were all playing it. And it was great to see. They actually liked the song. They were music fans. People forget that they were all in their mid-20s and they, they liked music and they liked Drew and Die. They were trying to you know, get the song used by some artists. They were trying to record it and get it released uh, in several ways. And for them to, at that time, with all this material they were doing, the rock oldies, for them to break into Tales of Frankie Rabbit, uh, you know, Drew was quite chuffed when I, I pointed it out. He nearly, uh, he nearly collapsed when he heard that the, the, the guys were playing a cover of their songs. So who knows? Maybe they'll make it into the Get Back movie that comes coming out this summer. But it was great to hear, and it was a lot of fun. If you ever heard you jam, here I am. If you're ever in a shit, grab my tit. If you're ever in the dark, that's friendship, friendship. All the There's a number of sources that erroneously quote that as a, you know, an improvised track or, or a snippet of a Lennon or, Mac or McCartney song in this instance, which obviously is incorrect. No, it was it was from the Apple publishing catalog. Um, Drew and I actually got the material, the rights back when they left. Um, you know, they still consider that one of the, the biggest mistakes that they made, uh, not waiting for Paul McCartney to do another session. Because um, what had happened, Paul McCartney took them into the Trident Studios in August 1969 to uh, produce a single for Drew and Die. And unfortunately, Peter Asher was on holiday. So Peter Brown had the responsibility of, of booking musicians to support them. And he forgot. And the day of the session, he had to quickly find some musicians, a drummer and a bass player, uh, to back them up. And no one knows where he found the two, but the uh, the drummer was drunk and the bass player was was semi-competent, you know, from a show band down to some theater down the street. And Paul McCartney put a lot of time and effort to try to make this sound like a record. But at the end of the day, the it just wasn't quite right. Um, it, it's quite charming and it's pretty good. But you can hear if it had professional you know, session musicians, it, it probably would have been uh, where it needed to be. And it's it's a lot of fun, though, and it's great to be able to 
bring this track to life after all those years. These are the tales of Frankie Rabbit. Now you may have read about Frankie Rabbit when you were just a little kid. Frankie Rabbit was the young bunny rabbit who used to run off with all the young bunny ladies. You know, as you grow up and you get a lot older, finding life, you meet a lot of Frankie Rabbits. Now we have an artist who had quite a bit of success with Apple, with the Beatles and as a, a solo artist, and that's Billy Preston. And now we have Everything's All Right. What a great album. That's the way God planned it. Obviously known for that single, but Everything's All Right. That was uh, co-written with Doris Troy, wasn't it? Yeah, that was one of the early you know, Apple publishing projects to you know bring these two artists together. Um, and they wrote a couple songs that were really really good material and it was a single and what i was surprised to find you know since i'd done the original book was there's actually a remix the single itself i had never noticed it but it's 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 totally remixed from the album the horns are different different keyboards and it's much poppier and 
for whatever reason, it, it just wasn't able to follow up to the success. I mean, that's the way God planned it was a big hit in the UK, a little less so in the US, but it was it was just shy of the top 10. And it's surprising that, you know, everything's all right, didn't get close to the, you know, similar success, but you know, such was the way of the music business at the time. But it's really, it's a really good song. And again, excellent production by George Harrison. He was quickly becoming a very skilled producer. And he was on a roll, you know, you know, whether it was, whether it was the Jackie Lomax stuff or the, the Radha Krishna Temple material or the Billy Preston or the Doris Troy, uh, he was consistently delivering uh, just stellar material that a lot of a lot of producers who had been doing it a lot longer and a lot more, a lot more higher volume production work couldn't even beat. It was, it was really impressive how he came on and developed as a producer so quickly. Yeah, just like with Jacket yeah. Lomax, George brought in many of his musician friends to to play on on Billy's material as well, and on on the album itself as well as Doris. There's people like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton, I think, isn't there? Yeah, and for the Encouraging Words album in 1970, the second album, it's it's the same. They had you know Delaney and Bonnie on there, and Eric Clapton, and uh, all sorts of folks. Uh, but Apple never was big on putting musician credits on the albums because, you know, for, for one reason, they didn't want, particularly when the Beatles were on it, they didn't want to make it seem like they were letting their coattails be written. They wanted the artists to really do it on their own. But one of the things I learned as I was you know doing the, the new edition of the book, too, they were also very wary of putting musician credits because they did not want to pay those musicians and their labels it would be such a hassle having to go back and do an arrangement with, you know, Shelter Records or A&M uh, or whoever to say, all right, well, your artist is on three tracks, so we're going to have a contract and you'll get X amount of, you know, pennies for each album sold and they'll get a penny or two. And it was just too much of a hassle between having to go back and, and legally get the rights to have these musicians appear. They thought, let's not put anything on it. We'll have the mysterious, uh, just no credits. But it undermined you know, a lot of the commercial appeal of the albums because back in the late 60s, early 70s, supergroups were all the rage. You know, just saying you had Eric Clapton playing guitar, but you shipped another you know, thousand or so copies for a lot of records. And uh, unfortunately, Apple just didn't do that. So it, you know, it was a rather noble effort, but it, it sort of undermined their, their sales uh, ultimately. I've been made free I don't have to fret no more Cause everything's alright Everything's alright Everything's alright oh, It's alright with me With me With me hey, yeah, yeah. Just what I need I don't have To search no more Cause everything's alright Yes it is now Everything's alright Have 
about a number of the bands associated with Apple Publishing and here's one of my favourites and a band that only in recent years are really getting their due with some of the reissues of, of their material and that's Mortimer and uh, one of their tracks here which I think features on disc one You Don't Say You Love Me so this was an American band who through George Harrison signed with Apple Yeah, they were they were a group of American teenagers they, they were playing in New York City for several years and they had actually done a really great acoustic pop album uh, for Phillips Records uh, earlier in 1968. Their manager was Danny Secunda, and he brought him to England for a while for in the fall of 1968 just to see if he could get something going for the group. And nothing really happened for them, and they were getting ready to go back to uh, the United States when they were just listening to the radio as they're packing up. And they heard over the BBC that the, the Beatles were looking for songs and Apple was looking for songs for Mary Hopkins' album. And that if you had a, any songs and you're a songwriter, you should send them to Apple and maybe Mary Hopkins would record it. Well, they marched down to Savile Row and, and they, they knocked on the door and they had all their guitars. And they said, well, we'd like to you know, submit some songs for Mary Hopkins. And, and the, the secretary there was saying, well, you have to leave a tape. And they said, well, we can't leave a tape. You have to go back to America you know, tonight. And he called up and they uh, they called up to Mike O'Connor in publishing. They said, there's a group here called Mortimer. And he said, Mortimer, I know them. John Lennon gave me their album this summer. Uh, they had actually gone to a party in New York and they gave Nat Weiss a copy of their album. And John Lennon, to his word, brought it back to England. And he said, send them right up. And so they're sitting up there in the, the fourth floor playing songs for Mike O'Connor. And George Harrison walks in out of one door. He's dancing around the room to their song, Life Sweet Music, enjoying himself. He dances out the other door in one of his Indian outfits. And on his way out, he says to Mike O'Connor, sign him up. So George is gone. The Mortimer guys are just sitting there slack-jawed, not believing what just happened. <laughs> in the next couple of days, they're signing Apple Records contracts and also Apple Publishing contract. And they spent around a year with Apple. They, they recorded an album. And unfortunately, by the time their album was done, um, Alan Klein had just come into Apple and he put all the projects that were working on at the time on hold and their album never got released. And it was produced by Pete Asher and it was fabulous album, um, you know, some really good material. Obviously, you know, it's probably best known for Paul McCartney giving them On Our Way Home, an early version of Two of Us. 
uh, he had heard the album when the group finished the album. And he said, yeah, you, you do a lot of acoustic stuff. I, I think I have a song for you. And he gave them this song uh, on our way home and they recorded it and they added it to their album. Honestly, I don't think, and they don't think that it was a particularly great version. They just didn't nail it. They, it came nowhere near the charm of the Beatles version of Two of Us. Uh, but when Paul McCartney gives you a song and he owns the label, you're going to put it on the album, uh, regardless of how it turned out. But if you listen to the other material, like You Don't Say You Love Me, it's just great pop songs. And that song in particular, it's sort of a wall of sound, upbeat pop song. It would have been perfect for American radio in the summer of 1969. Uh, it was a lost opportunity. Um Mortimer were a band that, A, they were already known in America. They had a lot of press at the time from their other album. Uh, they had a, a good amount of radio play, so they were known. It would have been a much easier job for Apple to promote, but they were also able to tour. They, they played constantly. They were ready to go on the road, and that was one of the big issues with a lot of Apple artists outside of Badfinger and the Ivies. None of these bands toured, and they just didn't get the exposure to college audiences, which were becoming increasingly important at that time. You know, AM radio was still dominant, but a lot of the Apple artists weren't really AM artists, except for this is America again. I'm sorry if, uh, uh, to, to cross the, that line, so to speak. But uh, Mortimer were different. You know, they were able to go out. They were able to play colleges and clubs, whereas most of the Apple bands either didn't have a backing band ready to go or just they weren't known for their performing. Um, so it was a lost opportunity, and their album never came out. And ultimately, Apple decided not to, re to release it. And what I was able to find, you know, since the 2002 book was the reason that Alan Klein probably didn't is because Apple had to buy them off of Philips Records. And uh, the deal was is that they would pay Philips Records something like $17,000, uh, you know, back before uh, they would start earning royalties on this. And you had to sell a lot of records back then to uh, make $17,000. And it just really didn't make financial sense at least in Alan Klein's mind, to do it. and He may have been right, maybe not, but uh, unfortunately, Apple never released the album until Cherry Red and RPM were able to find the tapes and uh, we put the album out in 2017, which was uh, one of the, the great the great joys of uh, my stint doing this Apple stuff. And, uh, you know, Tony, the sole surviving band member, was just delighted. He didn't think he'd live to see the day when the album came out, so it was great to, to be able to do that. You don't say you Tomorrow. 
love me, you don't believe me. Whoa, whoa. may be the definitive Apple group, Badfinger, and uh, an unissued single mix here of Name of the Game. In terms of this track and this single, this is quite an interesting period for Badfinger, and you'll, you'll need to correct me on the chronology here. They were doing sessions with Jeff Emmerich, and then George Harrison kind of got involved, but then the concert for Bangladesh came, and then eventually... The tracks were were finished off by Todd Rundgren, but I know that the story is quite a bit longer than that, isn't it? It is. It is quite convoluted. But what had happened is they had uh, released the No Dice album in November 1970, and they had a massive hit with uh, No Matter What uh, in both the, the UK and the US. And they were such a hardworking band, and they had so many songs. They finished up their American tour and they came back uh, to England and they went into the studio in January, I believe January, February 1971, to do the follow-up album. They recorded a complete album with Jeff Emmerich. And it's a really good album, but it just didn't really have a hit single. Uh, The closest that they had was Name of the Game. And Apple said, you know what? This isn't the follow-up album that we're going to need. It's good, but we'll go back and we'll do another album in a couple months when you come back from your tour. But we'll put out Name of the Game as a single. And then they got a little bit cold feet on that. And they said, you know what? When you get to New York to pick off your tour, you know, we'll, we'll do some overdubs and you know, we'll add some additional material. And that's what they did to try to make it a single. Um, Al Cooper was hired, the session man best known for his work with... Uh, you know, Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, Al, you know Bloomfield and the group. And uh, he took the tape, he sped it up a little bit, and he overdubbed organ bits, uh, you know, some organ um, overdubs. I don't know if it made it more commercial. Uh, you, you can be the judge and your listeners can be the judge uh, when they listen to it. But they never really used this mix. Um, you know, it didn't come out. This came off of acetate uh, that was cut at Bell Sound uh, to – you know, give it consideration as a single. And they probably wisely didn't use it because it, it's a wonderful song, uh, but it's just not a pop song of, of 1971. But George Harrison didn't want to let it go. He really liked the song. So he took a stab at it as well. Uh, him and Phil Spector did another mix uh, of what you know, Al Cooper had done later in the year, but they didn't think it hit the mark either as a single. So it was never released. And, uh, I don't think it's ever been heard. I, I assume the tape is still in Fire Park somewhere, and hopefully it'll come out at some point. But at least this version of what Al Cooper did, um, you know, did survive on acetate. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's just a really interesting part of Badfinger history. And you wonder what would have happened to their career if this had been the follow-up single as opposed to Day After Day, which is ultimately – would it have taken the next level or would it just sort of cut their chances off or would it have had no impact – 
And it's something interesting to ponder. But fortunately, uh, Apple was right when they said, let's go back and do some new material with uh, George Harrison when he frees up. Uh, George Harrison produced uh, Day After Day for them. And it became you know, their, their breakthrough hit, their first American gold record, their first and only American gold record. And it really, I think, you know, set Badfinger up for you know, where they are now as a really revered group uh, of the early 70s, and, you know, the power pop scene and what have you. Oh! 
We have two sides of Apple here. You've got more of that classic, what's now known as power pop side, which Badfinger rep- represent. But you've also got the more experimental side of Apple represented in the releases of Yoko Ono, in a similar way as Badfinger, quite a number of releases throughout the 10-year of Apple here. And now we have a, a single edit of, of Mind Train. The single was actually cut from a much more extended version that I think was on Yoko's Fly LP. Yes, uh, the, the original version on the album is I think some 10-odd minutes or something like that. And it's what struck me and what I didn't really appreciate at the time, you know, when I was writing the first book in the, the late 90s, you know, I had started hearing some of those German bands, you know, you know, Can and Amandul and what have you. Uh, but I didn't really put the connection together. You know, I've, I've listened to that music a lot, a lot more since then. And what Yoko was doing at the time on Plastic Ono Band and Fly in particular was shockingly similar to what a lot of those German groups were doing, you know, with a lot of rhythm, voice manipulations, what have you. And it was it was really nice to go back and reappreciate, you know, what she had done, particularly those albums. Those are those are my personal favorites. And one of the challenges that I have, um, you know, particularly with the book is now Yoko has a, you know, she's revered in certain circles for, for those, you know, four Apple albums. People get very defensive on her behalf uh, when people talk about how she was um, handled at Apple. But going back, you really do need, and I, I mentioned this earlier, to put things into context. And all the folks who worked at Apple Records who repeatedly say, well, yes, Yoko's albums were nice, but we couldn't give them away. They were unsellable. It's true. I mean, in 1970, 71, 72, this music didn't and couldn't get played on the radio. It didn't sell. And unlike a lot of the other artists who would get, you know, uh, you know, one chance, you know, Doris Troy or, you know, Mary Hopkins got the two albums. Yoko got to do four albums. She got singles off of all those albums. You know, she got big billboards. She got uh, a lot of press uh, adverts that these other artists who had more commercial potential at the time didn't get from Apple because you know she was the wife of one of the owners of the company. And that's one of the hard things because her albums were expensive. She didn't record them quickly. They're always recorded at, at high-end you know, New York City studios with the, the most expensive uh, cream of the crop session musicians. Nothing, no expense was spared. And she did some great music and they, they stood the test of time. They were ahead of their, their time, certainly. But when they came out, Apple, there was no way Apple was going to recoup any of the money that they were putting into these projects. And it, it's not a, a slight on Yoko Ono. It's just the what it was in, in 1970 and 74, up, up until even the 80s. I think until, until groups like the B-52s or so and New Wave came in, uh, that's when people really saw, ah, that's what Yoko was doing. She was 10 years ahead of her time. But you know, before that, um, it, it just wasn't something that was commercial. And to be honest, even now, you know, in the past 20 years, with the Ryko Disc reissues and the, the Secret Early Canadians, they're not selling vast numbers of copies. Um, but it's, you know, it's great. And it's great that she's appreciated for the artist she was. But you do have to put it in the context from how these Apple Records uh, you know, employees just didn't know what to do with it. Um, they, they did their best, but, you know, it wasn't going to get played in the AM radio station in America so it, it was what it was, as, as they say, but some great material. Yeah, and um, on what now, maybe unfortunately, the last years of her life, more extensive releases of the, the unreleased material for, for Yoko Ono now. So 
more stuff out there and, and more acclaim and, and revisiting her, her work during this Apple period? Absolutely. I was really disappointed, actually, in the Plastic Ono band. There was a, a lot of more Yoko Ono material, extended version of the track Y, which was one of my favorites. And it was only on the Blu-ray. And I don't know why they didn't, didn't have it on the CD. I mean, some of the tracks were, but... Yeah, I would have liked to see her even more forward with the, on the Plastic Ono band because it was amazing that she and, and John Lennon were there with you know Klaus Foreman and Ringo cutting these two amazing albums. And we should be very thankful that you know that a it was recorded at the time because a lot of groups, because of you know John Lennon's stature, they were able to keep the tapes running. They were able to throw an extra five tapes to the machine and record everything, as opposed to you know if Badfinger were there. You know, they might have a tape for the session. When that tape is out, they'd have to ring back to Apple to see if they pay the whatever, 20 pounds for another roll of tape. But with John, you know, Lennon, everything was was captured. And that's one of the great things. And it really is, particularly the Yoko material, it was a lot different. And in, in some of these extended jams that she was doing were just really remarkable. So it's it's nice that she was getting this acclaim uh, in these, these twilight years, assuming that's the case.
Moore, we have a track from the fourth disc, and this is capturing the material recorded at Savile Row from 1971 to 1975 and I think we go here to December 1971 and the band Fanny with uh, Jeff Emmerich engineering and Richard Perry producing and Fanny's version of Hey Bulldog. I've heard that there was some change lyrics on the track and on the on this version of the track and that there was approval for that. Is that actually the case? Are you aware of any of this? I, I had not heard that. I thought they were just doing their own thing. It, it wouldn't have been hard. I mean, Richard Perry at the time was Ringo's producer as well. And they could have just called right upstairs to the publishing department. I mean, it wasn't Northern Songs, but uh, they could have grabbed a Beatle to sign off on it. But it very well could have happened. A little cheeky that they go into the Beatles' new studio and record a Beatles song as they're their single, but it's a great track. Fanny were a fabulous, you know, American all-woman band, which is is quite the rarity at the time. And it's quite the rarity now, but particularly then, I mean, they were a really good band. And this disc was a lot of fun. You know, famously, the Beatles wanted their own studio in, in the basement of Savile Row so they wouldn't have to wait around for Abbey Road to open up or Trident to open up. And they gave Magic Alex the job and he, you know, he, he sort of dropped the ball they had to rip everything out, but they finally, you know, they hired Jeff Emmerich away from Abbey Road to design and build the new studio. And it was ready in the fall of 71. And Apple's Lon and Derek Van Eaton, uh, which is what I learned later on, they were essentially the guinea pigs. They had three months in the studio recording their Apple album. And when there was a problem, you know, the Apple engineers would come in or they would come in from EMI and the wires were hanging around still and the studio wasn't really finished and they were working out all of the the glitches while Lon and Derek recorded their albums. So they really, you know, people wondered why Apple gave them so much time in the studio. I mean, three months at the time was a lot, long time for an unknown group, but they were sort of the test case. And as they went along, they would, you know, work on, you know, sound baffles and they'd work on the electronics of the studios. And when they wrapped up their album and, and Lon and Derek headed home in December 71, Fanny came in to record an album. They were the first outside group to use the Apple studio. And it's a really great album. It, it sounds wonderful. Jeff Emmerich really knew how to get a good sound out of that studio. And, you know, Hey Bulldog is it's just a great track. There's another song that we included on the disc, uh, Ain't That Peculiar, uh, which is the American single, maybe the UK single too. And there it was just a fabulous, you know, between the studio and the artist, it was it was a great combination. They really they really created some great work there. You got quite a range of artists who, who recorded at Sahoro in that period. Oh, it, it's it's all over the map. Um, you know, they were uh, Tony Hazard is another one who came in with the Beatles connection. He cheekily, you know, performed a song called Paul McCartney, where he was sort of wondering why he couldn't write songs as good as Paul McCartney. And, and Tony Hazard was one of the greatest songwriters of the the UK in the 60s, but it was sort of fun. And he recorded it in Paul's studio. Badfinger came in, they came in, they recorded there while they were still at Apple. And they famously recorded there you know, towards the end of the career, the last album, Head First, which wasn't even released until 20 years later, uh, was one of the last albums recorded at Savile Row. Uh, so there's there's any number of groups. Um, Frank Sidebottom recorded there, Chris Sivy. One of the tracks is is on this CD. Uh, him and his brother came to Apple and did a sit-in. They wanted to meet one of the Beatles and play their music to him. And they, they sat in. They wouldn't leave the office. And then Tony King, who was the, the A&R manager, came down. He said, OK, lads, you have to leave. We're closing up the building. But tell you what, we'll give you studio time if you leave. And they 
they they talked amongst each other and they agreed to that. And you know, true to their word, Apple said, okay, you know, a deal's a deal, come on in. And they recorded some demos in the studio, um, a little bit lo-fi. It came out of a, an, off an acetate that they had survived. But, uh, you know, sure enough, he'd be Frank Sidebottom uh, 20 years later. And then they were a good little pop band at the time. In addition to that, Steeler's Wheel, they were probably the biggest band, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You, a massive pop hit. And it was recorded, you know, down in the, the basement of Savile Row. That was probably the biggest commercial hit that uh, was recorded there. And there was a lot of obscurities as well. One of the things we found is uh, Fairfield Ski. Uh, this, the track is 10 minutes long, and they, they really went, went to town with the, the, the Hammond organ in the Apple basement. But, and they were unusual because most of the artists who recorded at Savile Row were affiliated with the major label in one way or the other. But Fairfield Ski were just this English band who pulled together their own money, and they were able to find a booking, and they, they booked the studio for a couple of days and recorded a track, and it came out great. It was a great sound studio. You know, they, they had a great engineer from Apple, and there's, there's lots of stories like that, and that disc really captures a story of, you know, the big-name artists, but also the lesser-known who were able to capture a little bit of that, that Apple magic uh, recording down there in the basement, and it was interesting. It only lasted for five years, four years, really, uh, but there were a lot of good records recorded down in the basement and a lot of things were recorded that never came out. And we're glad that we we're able to give them a chance to, to be heard after all this time. i 
And now to Elephant's Memory and Wind Ridge from their self-titled album on Apple from 1972. And of course, Elephant's Memory, a band who played relatively prolifically with uh, John and Yoko through 71 to 73. And uh, this particular album, when I think Elephant's Memory, sometimes I think of Sometime in New York City. and it was a, it's, it's a similar vein of some, Sometime in New York City. Um, it's political, but it's not as heavy-handedly political as some of the songs are in Sometimes in New York City. Um, they were a great band. You know, the guitarist was wonderful. They were, they were just a very strong band. Where they were let down a little bit, perhaps, was was some of the songwriting. Um, they were good. It was a good hard rock sound at the time, but it wasn't a sound that Apple was known for. Uh, and that was part of the disconnect. And I think more importantly, it wasn't the kind of material that Apple knew how to promote. You know, they had a hard time you know, getting radio play, um, certainly in the UK. And there a couple stations would play it, but there really wasn't room for that that kind of hard rock that wasn't, you know, say Aerosmith or something. They actually had the same managers as Aerosmith at the time. So that's why it was a bit of a challenge for them. And also the there was a little bit of a power struggle within the group. I mean, Wind Ridge is probably the most commercial, I think, of of the songs on the album. That was written by their bass player, Gary, but most of the other material was written by the, the main members of the band, Stan Bronstein and Rick Frank, the drummer and the, the saxophone singer, uh, respectively. And there was a power play. They were they had gone back with the band. They had founded the band in the 60s, so they wanted to do their material, and that was their vision. But, you know, Wind Ridge was, it was certainly one of the things that John Lennon thought was the most commercial. Uh, John wrote that organ part that you hear, the keyboard part in that song, and spent a long time you know, overnight working on, on this material. He thought it would be a single, but the group decided not to do it, which was a shame. But it was interesting. It's Could have Apple have done something with it? I'm not sure. A lot of the folks in my – I spoke to a lot of people from Apple in uh, New York at the time uh, for the – those were the days 2.0. And the Apco people just really didn't get behind it. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, Pete Bennett, who was a very – successful and famous promoter he just couldn't get it played on the radio and unfortunately that's why the album never really took off but it's a great hard rock album from the early 70s and they definitely were of their times very new york uh you know sort of biker band and uh, it's it's a nice relic you know sonic relic of the time and john lanyoko's time in new york city
they any other Apple bands who were American who recorded in in the US like Elephant's Memory? David Peel, uh, our right. was the other one, and yeah. John he was a street singer in New York City, and up until the you know, mid '90s, you would see him in New York City just strumming his guitar and singing his pro pot songs and things like that. And John was you know, fascinated by him, John and Yoko, and they brought him into the record plant and essentially recorded them live, you know, in the record plant. So it sounds better than you would have recorded them, you know, in 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 the park in New York City. But uh, it was a, a rough and ready record. And I don't know if they really did themselves any favors, you know, entitling it The Pope Smokes Dope, uh, which is one of the songs. Um, a lot of the stores didn't want to stock it. Um, radio play was out of the question, uh, you know, particularly for a conservative country at the time, as the United States was. Uh, the record didn't even get released in the UK. I think it only came out in Venezuela or something, something in Japan. So it wasn't really a big, uh, you know, it didn't really sell a lot. Uh, but David Peel had done several albums for Electra Records before, so it wasn't like John came out of the blue and just picked this guy up and it did something, you know, that didn't really make any sense. He was known; he had recorded before, but it just wasn't the best fit for Apple because they they really weren't set up to promote records like that, and it was probably a little bit too out there for um, you know the American industry at the time. Our final track today is by Chris Hodge, Contact Love, which I think was a B-side from an Apple single from 1973. Not that well remembered now, but actually Chris Hodge before this single had actually had a a hit in in the US, hadn't he? Yeah, he came to Apple um, in the spring of of 72. He walked in and he, and this is one of the things that I I really try to capture in the book because back then you could literally walk off the street with a, a demo play your song. If they like it, you know, you could sort of have an agreement to have a record out relatively soon. He, he played the song to Tony King, who was Apple's A&R manager, who liked it. And then he played it to Ringo, who was in the office the next day. And Ringo liked it. So they had Chris come back and they said, we really like your song. We'd like to put out the demo. And he said, well, I'd like to re-record it. So Chris actually came back into uh, Apple Studios, uh, this time with producer Tony Cox, who had done a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, Caravan, a lot of the progressive bands, uh, Magna Carta, and they did this wonderful record, We're On Our Way, uh, that became almost a top 40 hit in America. You know, it got played fairly often and did relatively well, not as well in the UK, but Apple was really excited. They hadn't had an artist with a hit single in America for quite a while. So they decided we're going to do an album, and they sent Chris down into Apple Studios to start working on an album. And before our album was even finished, they would, in early 73, the Apple Records label started you know, falling apart um, after they split with Alan Klein, uh, but they, they were still committed to Chris Hodge, and they put out you know, Goodbye Sweet Lorraine as, as the single and Contact Love as the B-side. Probably not the best idea. I mean, Goodbye Sweet Lorraine's a nice song, but sort of this laid back, as, as Chris describes it, a, a Spacey Eagle song, which it does sound like. But you flip it over, and Contact Love is like this sort of T-Rex glam rock a really great track. They probably should have flipped it um, and had that as the leadoff single because people today forget how big Mark Bolin and T-Rex were in, you know, 71 to 73 or so. And it was very much in, in that genre, especially with the Ringo connection. And Ringo was, he was really good mates with Bolin. There could have been some sort of tie-in and it, it may have changed things. And Chris regrets, you know, maybe going with uh, Goodbye Sweet Lorraine, but 
that was his thing at the time and they put it out and it's it's a good single but contact love really uh really hits the mark i think as you were indicating as things started changing by 1973 the the diversity or, or new artists coming into Apple kind of fell away, and, and you did get some further releases with the Apple label. That was, but that was predominantly either Beatles related or, or Badfinger, and it kind of it sort of dripped along. So was it late '75 or something around that time? Well, what had happened? The Beatles split with uh, Alan Klein in April 1973, and when that happened, they essentially lost most of their U.S. record label, the people, because most most of the Apple business in the U.S. is being handled by Apco Records employees, um, Al Steckler in particular. The man was sort of the one-man Apple Records office, you know, working with most of the artists, you know, doing all the American mastering. But he was Klein's employee. So when the Beatles split with Abco, you know, Al Steckler went with him, you know, and the California office that Klein had set up for Apple – stayed with Abco as well. So they didn't really have anyone to work records, you know, develop artists. Badfinger had already had a lot of stuff in the can. They were already had momentum, but there were no more new artists at that point. They were, you know, Chris Hodge really was the last person to get something out. They, they had tried to sign a couple more people, but nothing, there were some recording sessions, but nothing ever came of it. And they decided at that point, they probably should wrap, wrap up the label. So they started winding it down. They had some Badfinger things still to release, but from that point on, it was pretty much Badfinger, Yoko Ono, and uh, the four remaining Beatles. And the label itself was formally wound down and, and the employees let go um, in the spring of 1975. And summer records would still come out for the, the four Beatles, uh, well, the three. Paul McCartney finished up in, in early 75. He had given them the required number of records. Uh, so it would show up on the Apple Records label until early 76, but then it was over. And they, they they got their new deals. So it was a it was a fascinating time, you know, essentially 68 to 75. And they did a lot of great music just as the Beatles and also some of the artists they they brought on, as you could he- hear over this show, um, both recording artists and songwriters that they worked on early in their career uh, when they had Apple Publishing going. So it was a great experiment. And they were more or less proud of, you know, what they accomplished. They you know, Paul McCartney is known as not having been a big fan of how Apple ended up. But there's a great quote from from 1976 that I included in the book about, you know, we did a pretty good job. All those records, you know, the Jackie Lomax, the Radha Krishna Temples, the Badfingers, the James Taylors, uh, they're good records. They, they certainly stand the test of time. And that's one of the interesting things. Even playing them now, they still sound good. Um, you know, in the U.S., do they have serious satellite in the uh, in the UK? Do you have? Uh, I think you have to go on their website and possibly use a VPN, but it has been known. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, it, it's it's going the Beatles channel here in the United States. They started playing Apple artists, and it really sounds great. You know, they add it. You know, in between, you hear some Beatles songs, and all of a sudden, they're playing the Ivy's "I'm in Love" or uh, you know Jackie Lomax uh, obscure B sides, and it's great to hear, and they stand up really well. And I think that's one of the things the Beatles with their their expertise. Everything they did, it didn't sound dated. I mean, yes, there's a couple of things in the catalog that that sound very much of their time, but for the most part, uh, a lot of the music that Apple did is timeless, and it really stands up even now. Stephanie, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you. And as you say, listening to the material in the five CD box set, Good as Gold, as well as reading what in essence is the definitive history of Apple, just is a testament to what um, a legacy 
Apple has left us. Uh, and it's been great to talk to you today about that legacy and play some of the highlights from what an incredible time in, in music history. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun and I hope people enjoy it. I mean, it's been, yeah, it's been a really great opportunity for me to like tie in a book with the music and you don't, you don't have to wonder what a lot of these things sound like. It's right there uh, and readily available, which wasn't the case even, you know, 20 years ago. I, I couldn't tell you how many people sent me letters asking to hear a tape of the Mortimer album, uh, you know, when the book first came out and, I wasn't in a position to share it, but it's there now. It's there to be rediscovered and or discovered for the first time. And uh, yeah, thanks for bringing it all together here because it's um, a really nice story and you, know, you did a great job with you know bringing together all the strands. So really enjoyed it and uh, you know, thanks a lot. See you later. Bye-bye. Have a good night. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast 
and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.